question. How would you define socialism in its simplest terms? How would you define it? Mm. Man said something that stopped me in my tracks. Because I've, I've actually studied socialism. I've read the books, you know, capitalism from a Russian perspective, capitalism from a, or, or socialism from a Russian perspective, World War II from the Russian, like I've, I've already read all of this kind of stuff um, to, to know the distinction between capitalism and, and socialism. Um, and the many ways of, of, of managing government and economies in between that are a little bit of both, which is what we kind of have right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, to me, socialism, uh, he was talking about democratic socialism, so like Bernie Sanders type, not full mm-hmm. on socialism. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And he said, um, each person produces according to their capacity and they receive only according to their need. The, okay. the, level of honesty that you would have to have to live like that. So for instance, um, right now in America, it's hard to find hand sanitizer. It's hard to find toilet paper. It's hard yep. to find paper towels because of this, this uh, coronavirus. And I, was, I, I went to the grocery store once again, third time in three weeks. I go once a week to the store. I don't get out much anymore because we're supposed to be social distancing. And I went again looking for hand sanitizer and paper towels. And again, I uh, didn't find much. I've still not found any hand sanitizer, um, but I did find six rolls of paper towels and I found them on the top shelf in the very back <laughs> of a row in the supermarket. Well, thank God you're 11 feet tall, sir. Now, exactly. <laughs> I am six foot five, nearly two meters tall. Who else would have been able to see that? Right. Mm-hmm. Who could have seen that? Now, well, those who were your similar height, people who are six foot five and up, <laughs> I saw it clear as day. Not only, not only did I see it, I could reach it. Right. Ooh. I didn't ask for that. I didn't ask for that ability. Mm-hmm. Now, in the middle of a public health crisis with needed goods in a world of hoarding, what do I do? Welcome to Shooting the Ish with a Brit the podcast where David, a white British man, and Jen, a black American woman, shoot the shit. Ish, she means ish, about whatever we want. British dinky deckers. Check. American bonnets. Check. Even mysterious potatoes. Oh, double check. So join us for another episode of Shooting the Ish with a Brit. What's going on, David? Hello, Jennifer. Um, what is going on? Uh, I think it's around day 40. <laughs> uh, but I, I don't know about you, um, but I'm, I'm actually amazed it's, we're at day 40 right now. It's somehow flown by, which is kind of insane. Um, and I still find myself not having enough hours in the day to do everything that I'd like to do, which is kind of crazy. Right, how about you? you say that because my days have been flying by as well and I had a realization today that my day shouldn't be feeling like Groundhog Day and Mm -hmm. I they do because so much of my days revolve around being in the office Mm -hmm. and me feeling like every single day the same is because I'm not in the office so I've really had to um change you know, my priorities every day. Work is important, but work yeah. shouldn't be the end all be all. So sure. for me to be feeling like it's groundhog day, that means that me being in the office has dictated uh, whether a day is truly a day 
you know? Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, and, and so what are you doing to kind of change the groundhog day element of it? Routine things like touching my toes as we, as we talked about, which continues to get easier and easier. Um, standing up that is, um, practicing Spanish every day, meditating every day, working Mm -hmm. on a script that I've been working on for like seven years and it is done, but I just keep revisiting it because Uh I am a crazy person. Um, just different things like that. You know, my boyfriend has actually really encouraged me to have like daily goals outside right. of work for me to center my days around. Yeah, it's, it's very helpful for sure. I, yeah. I, one, of, one of the first things I do uh, in the morning is essentially rewrite my list from the day before with the things I didn't get to and then add what else I need to for the day. And, and every day on that list, I put in, put in things like meditate, learn Spanish, do yoga, you know, all that kind of stuff is in there just to, to it factor it into my day. It's like, an, it's an essential for sure. Yeah. I think also that, you know, if I were dedicating eight or more hours to something that was just more in alignment with my purpose, uh-huh. and it would feel like a day. Do you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. For sure. um, but like most Americans, you know, we're all kind of doing something that we're good at and we get paid for, but it's not in alignment with what we're supposed to be doing here on this earth. So I think that's another aspect of it too, as to why it feels like Groundhog Day, you know? Yeah. And it, I don't know about you, but this time has certainly um, made me think about that purpose, right? And and what I would like in my life and how I'd like to proceed and, um, and advance. And, and it's definitely put a lot of thoughts in my mind about what's you know what what the future looks like for me we'll see um uh oh i actually one thing i did want to say before we get i also i have to make a correction on something i said on the last episode okay and it's very simple kind of so when when we had the podcast last week i was talking about a walk i took and i mentioned how good a meditation it was that is false and I've since understood that through a discussion and also just practice that I've come to the conclusion that a walk cannot be classed as a meditation. I think a meditation requires not only like the stillness of the mind, but the stillness of the body as well. Like getting your heart rate up completely defeats the purpose. So instead, I'm going to say that the walks are a mediation with the mind as opposed to a meditation. So that and you clarified that. Mm-hmm. That that's my uh, correction for the week. I mean, okay. I yeah. also want to make a correction, and this goes back a year ago. Oh wow! Because I was recently talking about mm-hmm. when I told you that "cuz" meant cousin. Mm-hmm. That is a hundred percent not true. Okay, and if you say that out, especially because you live in Los Angeles, somebody will deal. And I mean, like, in a negative way. Uh-huh. So I just want to say, David, do not use cuz, okay? Cause it, makes a lot, it makes a lot of sense why people have been been attacking me in the last yeah. few months. And wow. Okay, no, you wouldn't be attacked. Know. You just go missing, okay? And <laughs> would have been your blood on my hands. So that's my own correction. Okay. Um, another little update quickly before we get into it, though. The, the old boy with the Zimmer frame walking around his garden... You know, as we originally spoke about, he had intended to raise a thousand pounds and he's raised even more money. And last time we spoke, he was up to eight million pounds. What do you think he's at now? I don't know. 
Have a guess. Go on, throw out a number. 10 million pounds. Over 27 million. Wow. That's how fantastic is that? I love it. People will find ways to to get money. That's for sure. Very cool. Very, very cool. Okay. um, Shall we get into it then? What's your, what's your favorite thing this week? Yeah. So my favorite thing about the UK is really about a UK citizen. Okay. So Mm. I don't actually think she lives in the UK. I feel like she lives here in America, but uh-huh. um, she made a really poignant observation about these different um, sort of like, as we talked about, patriotic ways to applaud our healthcare workers. Mm-hmm. She said that in every post, meaning every newspaper or publication that she's seen in the UK, the images of the healthcare workers have been a hundred percent white. And so I want to play her criticism from Instagram Mm -hmm. because it's not only truthful and has a serious message, Mm -hmm. but it's hilarious too. (laughs) Okay. I was looking through the British newspapers uh, today uh, following the hashtag clap for our carers, which is a wonderful hashtag originated to appreciate all the doctors and nurses and helpers and carers within the NHS uh, who are putting their lives on the line every day and even more so now since this pandemic started. This was a page from the mirror. Oh, and here's one from the Metro. And more from other newspapers around the UK. Did you notice what was missing? Uh, Not a single black face, not one, but we all know that that's not what the NHS looks like. Where are the African doctors? Where are the Chinese and Caribbean doctors? Where are all the Asian doctors? Where are the Caribbean nurses? If you've been to a hospital in the UK anywhere in the last, I don't know, 50 years, you know that that's not what the NHS looks like. Certainly not since Windrush. Everybody knows that in the African or Asian family, there's only four choices in Korea. Doctor, lawyer, engineer, disgrace the family. So where are all the doctors and nurses of color? Why is it only the white doctors and nurses are on the front page of every newspaper, like they're the only heroes? Where they're all heroes. How about we see all of them? I don't know, I'm sure I'm not the only one who is sick of the contributions of all people of color being erased from history. So I think we should start a new hashtag, as well as clap for our carers, we should also start trending the hashtag, stop the whitewash. Now, people, I know some people are gonna get upset. Why are you always making it about color? It's not about color, it's not about race. If it's not, then put everybody in the pictures. Mm -hmm. That's pretty damning. And have you, Have you since uh, kind of perused American newspapers and seen if it's been a similar pattern? I haven't. Okay, because that would be an interesting comparison to do. Um, But that's pretty damning and pretty sad. Um, And uh, good good for her for highlighting it, absolutely. What's your experience with healthcare in the UK? Oh, she's absolutely right. Absolutely. I mean, mean, obviously, you know, majoritively it's it's gonna be white, of course. Because Um, there are more white 
because there's more white people, right? But absolutely, it's a very, very diverse industry in the UK. So uh, what she says is very surprising and bizarre, you know, and, and it's very bizarre. Yeah. I loved um, watching that. My cousin is actually the one that sent it to me. And I have been following, and let me, you know, quote, let me, um, you know, give you her name. Her name is Gina Yashir. I think that's how you pronounce it, but it's spelled Y-A-S-H-E-R-E. Um, okay. And when my cousin sent this to me, I was like, oh my God, like, I don't even know if I've been paying attention to the images that the American newspapers and publications have been using um, to say, hey, this is our health, this is, these are our healthcare workers and these are the people that we are applauding. Like, I haven't been paying attention to it. No. Your point, yes, I am curious to know how it compares. Um, I mean, I have healthcare workers in my family who are obviously black, you know. Yeah, black. yeah. Um, are they being represented in our posts? I have no idea, but yeah. the fact that Gina, as a UK citizen, called out the UK mm -hmm. for its tone deafness in who is taking care of people during this time and who's on the mm -hmm. front lines mm -hmm. was so needed. Yeah, no, that, it could, could hats off to her for that because uh, that's horrible to think about, really, um, especially in a situation like this. You know, you get credit, credit where credit's due, and, and that's for everyone, not just, not just white people. Yeah, and let me clarify, this was my least favorite thing about the UK. <laughs> oh, I, I figured, I figured, but, but slightly but favorite, favorite because yes, she, least, she called them out. Yes, least favorite thing because of that, but favorite because she called them out, so yes. <laughs> funny, funnily enough, um, yeah. my thing this week is also a least and most favorite <laughs> about uh, the US. Uh, and it's actually kind of so, like something that you put into apartment 4E um, recently. Um, so this week, my least and most favorite is world market customer service. I, essentially, I ordered a chair a couple of weeks ago, you know, for my home office, aka my bedroom. I paid $50 for shipping and the tracking said it arrived on the 14th. It did not. Um, I ended up emailing them five times, including today over the space of, you know, eight, nine days or whatever it was, um, maybe seven days. I cleared the details of the situation and asked for assistance. And every time I emailed them, they did not reply to my actual message. They just sent back an email with the tracking information, which had said that it arrived on the 14th. Um, and then the final email I got this morning was, oh, it's been so long since we didn't respond to you. We assume that your situation has been resolved by how insane is that? That's so ridiculous. Uh, and by the way, I also, during that period, tried to call them four times with a cumulative hold time of seven hours, which look, Whoa. don't get me wrong, I completely understand they're overwhelmed and that's, that's fair enough. But when you receive four emails and not one of them is responded to with an actual answer, that is terrible and bizarre. It's just, just so bizarre to me. Um, anyway, so that, that's the, the least favorite part of it is. But then this morning, after I got that ludicrous email, I did actually call them again. I tried, I sat on hold for an hour and a very nice lady called Melissa answered the phone. Uh, and she was so understanding and really lovely. You know, she immediately trusted what I told her and, and after checking the delivery details and so forth, the chair, she said, it said that it was delivered to the front office of the building. There is no front office here. It's an apartment building. So it's clearly to the wrong place. Fine. Great. Confirmed what's suspected. Anyway, 
ultimately she arranged for them to send me another one as soon as possible. Um, and she also removed the extortionate $50 shipping charge I had to pay. So my least favorite for everything prior to that and my most favorite for how they dealt with it once I actually communicated with them. I like that. Yeah. It is I mean, important I, to point out when they yeah. you know, do wrong and then when they rectify it. And sure. you said that you, know, you understand that the world market is busy, are they? Mm -hmm. Of course they, they are. Absolutely. Wow. All these, all the, because people are just buying stuff for their homes right now. Like people, a seven people, and a half hour wait. Well, that's over four different phone calls. Remember, okay. so the longest, the okay. longest one was about two hours and twenty minutes. Okay, I still think that is egregious. I mean, for world, so do I. Tell them to be in demand like that. So, you have uh -huh. a really good disposition when it comes <laughs> to being patient over the phone for customer customer <laughs> service. I don't. Wells Fargo, I've been trying to get in contact with them, my bank for a while. And I sat on the phone for 45 minutes. That's the longest I've waited. Anything over 10 minutes, I'm like, no way. 45 minutes still didn't get anybody. So the fact that you're like, I understand they're busy, like God bless you, because I, I don't know anybody who was ordering like that. So. Well, bank, banks are a different situation because obviously the huge thing that they're dealing with right now is, is exactly. dealing with is giving the loans out and so forth to the businesses and exactly. they're, they're completely overwhelmed. And, and that's about to happen again because the, the half trillion dollar stimulus, second stimulus package has just been approved. And a huge part of that again will be those business loans. So Exactly. My point is I don't like to wait. The second <laughs> point is you are pointing out that Wells Fargo is justifiably uh -huh. busy but then yeah. you're saying world market and wells fargo are on the same page no they're not <laughs> no 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 whoa 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 i i am certainly not saying that wells fargo and world market are on the same page okay. um but i am saying that i can completely understand that world uh, that world market among many other of these similar stores i'm sure are busy right now like everyone okay. wants to buy a comfy chair or something they, people are living in their homes 24 7 pretty much they, they want to make their homes nicer give it a True. bit of life you know? I just bought furniture from Wayfair. Wayfair there, is going to give go. me everything this week. Amazon, you know what they've been doing? They have been under-promising and over-delivering, which I appreciate. So, oh, that is interesting. Yes. Yeah. I don't know if it's a strategy. I mean, I, obviously it's a strategy, but as a Prime member, you know, usually we get one or two day free shipping, right? Mm -hmm. so the justifiable busyness, they'll say, oh, you're going to get your stuff in a month. You know what yep. I mean? To yeah. allow them some cushion. Um, but for example, you know, somebody just ordered like a DJ set uh, last week, said mm -hmm. that he was going to get it May 10th, and he got it today. So that's Amazon under promising over delivery. So honestly, I just have a criticism for the market. But you, again, have a way better disposition than me to understanding, even during this time. So God bless you, and God bless that person who rectified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i guess i just understand that a, you can only do so much right like you can only control the situation so much and um you just you you have no choice but to be patient in all honesty it's as simple as that or, or give up which doesn't seem like me <laughs> um so uh yeah so but anyway it seems like it, let's see if i get the chair in the next week or so that would be great and then uh, then maybe i'll talk about it again <laughs> <laughs> good luck um, okay, so what did I learn this week? So I kind of, this is a bit of a different one and uh, I actually wanted to play a little game with you. And so 
I haven't quite learned this yet, but I feel like I'm going to learn it now. And um, it was more just a train of thought on a walk this week. So it's nothing, it's super silly, by the way, but it's just an interesting, like, look at how your mind works compared to mine. Um, and my thought that was having you offer your ideas could be interesting learning experience. And this is just a test of this. So you use iMessage regularly, right? Mm-hmm. You, you have, you know, you can do the little hearts and the exclamation points and the ha ha and so mm-hmm. forth. So the game I want to play with you is I, I realized that those little hearts can, can represent three things when sent in an iMessage. So like, um, for example, with, with the ha ha, that's very obvious what the meaning is, right? You find that message funny. Mm-hmm. So I broke down that the heart can mean be used for three different responses or scenarios. What would your three different reasons for using the heart be? So to use the ha ha, it's to say, okay, that I find that funny. So mm-hmm. what, so what were the three things that you would use the heart for? That I would use the heart? Correct. Um, I wouldn't use it for three things. I'm sorry to be a terrible contestant. No, 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 no. This is good. I would use it for one, for one reason, because I love what the person said. That's been my pattern of how I've used it. I love what you said. I love the picture that you just sent me. That's it. Interesting. So this is, this has worked perfectly then because you, because I mean, but maybe it's because you haven't actually thought about it further, but okay. So you, yours is, I love this, right? Which is <laughs> my, which was my number one. So when t- someone tells you something that is amazing or sends a picture that's cool, you heart it, you love it. You think that's great. Mm-hmm. So the, the other two I, I came up with, one was when you're sending love to someone. So let's say someone tells you something that is quite saddening, maybe, like something tragic, something terrible has happened, um, and they're dealing with difficulty. So you would respond with a heart to, to be sending love to them. Right? Or not? Definitely not. You would not do that. Okay, this is, this is perfect. This is interesting because it's completely different for both of us, but I would use it in that scenario. And the third one is, is you may already guess this, but is I love you, right? When, when someone says something of a loving nature, expressing their love, uh, the use of the heart returns that love, or they say something that you, you adore or whatever, you kind of, you respond with that to be like, you know, I feel the same or I love you or thank, you know, in that kind of thing. So they're the three things and you only have it for one purpose, which is really interesting. So there you go. That's what I learned this week is that, we have very different understandings of the purpose of these, these little details in technology. Extremely, because I'm saying, if I'm saying to you, mm-hmm. I'm really sad, you know, because my dog has surgery and I'm just mm-hmm. in distress mm-hmm. and you hearted it, you and I are no longer friends. Because <laughs> hey, let's not to say there's no follow-up message. My dog is in surgery and I'm Come in on. distress. And then the other thing is, if, if somebody's saying, I love you, David, and you heart it, that would come off as very sarcastic to me. Then I would be like, why can't he even take the time to type out the words, I love you too? So hey, it's lazy. So hey, that's how no, no, whoa, 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 I would interpret it. Okay, so two I things. How I would interpret it. So two things. One thing is that there wouldn't, it's not that I wouldn't necessarily respond with something else, but just that's the, you know, I would also do the heart. Right. And that's what it stipulate. And as far as the, I love you goes, that's, you're taking that a bit literally. It doesn't have to be someone literally saying, I love you. It could be something of that vein, right. Or something very positive and affectionate from someone that you would then respond to. And again, most likely you'd respond with um, text as well. 
but often not like often it's just it doesn't need that it doesn't warrant it it's just like i you know i love you too or i love this or i'm sending love so it can I be can that see the latter i can see uh -huh. the latter uh-huh yeah i can see the latter and i think i've actually practiced the latter yeah. okay or okay. somebody says you know i really liked you know what you did um on your blog then i'll mm -hmm. heart it okay yes i can see that i can see that but then the heart on somebody's sadness i think that can be taken as sadistic you know interesting interesting this has been because then would you follow it up with a comment Even most likely I'd be, I'd be like confused why did he heart my distress and my sad story Oh, pardon me, I'm just sneezing, listeners. Um, it's not the coronavirus, I don't think. Uh, at least I hope not. Um, but anyway, this this has been really interesting, and it, it's actually worked perfectly because we do have very differing opinions for the most part. Um, so that's a, a really interesting insight. Thanks yeah. for playing my game. You're welcome, and thanks for the heads up because then I would have had to call you and cuss you out about something. <laughs> I'm pouring my yeah. heart out, and you up here hearting it, David. Good boy. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Um. So I learned that I could eat a full on vegetarian meal without being disappointed. <laughs> what was the meal? Fried mushrooms, uh, quinoa, and oven baked broccoli. It was delicious. Okay. Okay. And thanks to my mom for the um, fried mushrooms idea. So what she does is she gets some Zatarain's fish fry. Mm -hmm. She coats the mushrooms with it and then she fries it up. Okay. I use Louisiana fish fry, spicy. Fried it in some grapeseed oil, delicious. Then I make amazing broccoli, let me tell you. I think <laughs> the oven at my house is just A plus. It's like a real oven, you know? I feel like it's like borderline chef's oven. Okay. And then quinoa. I mean, my God, delicious. So that's what I learned about myself. And I really, really encourage people during this time to get a little more creative and to embrace the discovery of dishes that you may not have thought about eating, you know, mm -hmm. pre-COVID-19. That's great. I, I, I try and um, only eat meat one meal a day. So I, I tend to have at least one meal that's a vegetarian meal. Um, and it's, it is great. Uh, the only thing that you did say in that whole thing is you included mushrooms in there and, and that's disgusting. So. But have you tried them fried though? I've, I've tried several mushrooms in the past and they're just not for me. Okay. I understand. I understand that. Te texture and taste, you know, it's, it's not good. I understand. I'm not yeah. white sauce. There's something about white sauce that is just nasty. <laughs> and I don't know what the history of that is or what happened to me when I was a child, but I do not like white sauce. So I get it. I get it. It's <laughs> funny. Okay. Uh, so what about our guest this week? Our guest this week is Xavier Ramey. Oh yeah. He is a Chicago native, very proud of Chicago native. And from my side of town, by the way, so not the South side, not the North side. But the best West, side is West side. here. That's right. West mm -hmm. side is the best side. And so he's going to talk to us about his social justice work with his company, Justice Informed. It's a show, social impact um, 
firm that focuses on four very specific types of ways to achieve social justice. So get your dictionaries out, make sure that you can understand this amazing mind of ours um, because he's going to blow you away um, in many ways that you just never thought about diversity, social impact, and justice. So and, and it's a it's a longer interview than normal, just to pre-warn you. So this is a particularly long episode, but it really is worth it. He's he's a, a very interesting and and um, just it's very informative, and I learned I learned so much from it. So I highly recommend you do take the time. All right. Um, welcome to our guest segment, you guys. We are very excited to have a special guest on today. His name is Xavier Ramey, and he's the CEO and lead strategist of Justice Informed, a social impact consulting firm that he started in Chicago, Illinois. The firm offers organizations the chance to solve CSR, DEI, philanthropic, and community engagement challenges. The firm's clients include Mercer, Sprout Social, and Northwestern University. In addition to leading Justice Informed, Mr. Ramey is a noted public speaker, conflict mediator, and award-winning social strategist. And in addition to the in addition, he is one of my oldest friends, who my mom thinks the universe of, and most importantly, he is a fellow West Sidian, a proud native of the North Lawndale community that he reps every day. Welcome, Xavier, to the show. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jen. That was a wonderful introduction. I am just beaming and just, I'm, my goodness. Thank you. You're fact, welcome. You're welcome. welcome. You deserve it, friend. I mean, all the accolades, it was easy to put all those words together and just make you look amazing. So at, at, at the end, I, at the end I of- I look really great on podcasts. And, and <laughs> at the end of that, uh, he was, he, just so the audience knows, he was hugging himself at the end of that as well. He was so- <laughs> I don't so know if that was a it. hug. I don't know if that's a <laughs> traditional hug. That's more of like a, uh, what would you even call that, Xavier? That, yeah, that wasn't a hug. See, that's the that's the that's the British difference, right? <laughs> we're, we're, right now, y'all can see me on the video, but the reality is that wasn't a hug. That was a a, a, a old MC stance from the hip hop. <laughs> of course, it was. Oh, I know that culture of it. Of a like a b boy at the end of the uh -huh. yes. with their thing. Yes. They do the, the, the full body, hand to the hand, <laughs> shoulders to the shoulder, lean to the side. I wish you would try to step to me yeah. again. <laughs> yes, absolutely. No self-dopeness. And that's well, what you have to do after an introduction like that. <laughs> that's right. Come on. Well, thank you for coming for coming on board and, and uh, really excited to talk to you about um, what you've got going on. And, and maybe to get us started, I'd love to hear a bit more about you and, and your family background. And so I know you're not from Chicago originally, correct? And, and, and uh, how did your family end up in Chicago? Well, no, we're, de we're definitely from the city. I was born okay. in Chicago, my father okay. was born in Chicago, but uh, our family um, came up, my great grandfather, uh, Cleonius Garner. Um, that's a great that, name. That was like the coolest name in the world. Uh -huh. That's a great name. How do you spell uh -huh. it? <laughs> um, that was my father's uh, grandfather. Came up from Louisiana, uh, okay. Southern states. Um, uh, many thanks to the great racism of America. Um, uh, we we came from what Dr. King called the uh, virulent racism of the South to the creative racism of the North. Mm. Um, and uh, my mother's family is uh, uh, actually from uh, the, the the Georgia area. Um, okay. 
And so we've been in Chicago. I grew up in Chicago. I call the west side of Chicago home. Uh, I live in the Pilsen neighborhood now, which is considered west side mostly just by non-Chicagoans. Um, uh, hmm. the, the part of Pilsen I live in, because I live in what now, you know how like white people always rename and stuff. They call it yeah. East Pilsen. They do. Oh, yeah. Like, this was not, okay. how, how, are you, how are you still discovering new, like how's this they possible? Still, still doing it, yeah. They, they're still yep. doing it, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you know, don't want to be associated with the locals and all the people that want to buy into the market opportunity. Yeah. You know, they, they don't want to be associated with it. So they rename it and that makes it OK to tell all the people who don't live here yet that they live here. It's, yeah. it's funny. What, one time uh, someone was saying how uh, it's surprising how many Mexican people there are in in Los Angeles and surrounding area. And, and, you, and, and I said to him, oh, you mean in Los Angeles and Santa Clarita? <laughs> He's like, come on, come on. Real like face palm moment of like, come on, look around you, man. Look around you. You know, I was, I was talking to one of my, um, my, my, my friends today. He's a, a clinical professor of management at Northwestern University. Uh -huh. And I was talking about how incredible it is to be so safe, so safe that you, you feel no threat to exposing the sheer shallowness of your ignorance. Mm -hmm. mm. Yep. Like you have to be, I mean, think about like Donald Trump, like for him to say what he says, as okay. asinine, <laughs> ridiculous, you won't find anything he does in a leadership book. He is, he feels so safe yeah. in the environment that that's the definition of privilege. You can do the dumbest, most violent mm -hmm. things and feel completely safe and, and acknowledged and, and yeah. correct in doing it. Like, why, why are you upset? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, 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 that's, that's why I even have a company. That's because people feel safe doing violent things. Yeah, um, that's a really good way to put it, and that's really interesting. So let's let's move on to that then. Can you can you kind of give us a condensed version of your journey from your evolution into social activism and ultimately what what got you to create Justice Informed? Yeah, well, I was born by the river in a little tent, <laughs> and just like that river, I've been running ever since. Um, <laughs> no, Jen no. knows you cannot be serious with me. No, no. <laughs> Um, no. So um, I like to let everybody know, you know, my work comes out of the urgency of my identity. I'm an African-American man in mm -hmm. uh, the United States. Um, the United States being one of the few countries on earth that believes it's not racist um, and also believes mm -hmm. that uh, class is not a real thing. They just uh -huh. think some people are disadvantaged. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> which means that there are some people who are advantaged. Um, who don't admit that they're advantaged. Uh -huh. uh, they don't admit that if there are underprivileged people, that there are privileged people and also overprivileged people. Mm. Absolutely. Um, yeah. we, are, uh, we are, I live in and grew up in a nation that does not know itself and denies its history. And so it is always wandering and wondering, uh, trying to insist on not reflecting on what it is and what it could be if it was actually honest with itself. And so mm -hmm. um, uh, in, that, in that vein, uh, I grew up. Um, and uh, the west side of Chicago, if you all know anything about the west side of Chicago, I know, Jan, you do, because you grew up right down the street from the yeah. Um, uh, but the west side of Chicago is, is, the, uh, is the ghost town of bad public policy. Um, it's where Martin Luther King came in the 60s. Uh, he, he said that Chicago was ground zero for housing discrimination in the United States. Uh, mm -hmm. And that Chicago was the most violent city he had ever been to. And as he also said, uh, if people in... Um, uh, Alabama want to learn how to hate, they should come to Chicago to learn. Mm. Um, wow. Now it's a mostly liberal city, which exposes the challenge, right? Yeah. Like it's a, it's a liberal, um, you know, 
historically white working class, Irish, Italian, immigrant, some Dutch folks, mostly a lot of Catholics, Protestants, etc., cetera, um, who just insist on the doctrine of goodness, of if I can go to sleep at night and feel like I did the right thing, and I get to say what was right, not the other people right. across town, right. then I'm a good person. Personal absolution is the way to heaven. This is really awesome. Segregate, segregate, segregate. Let's make sure that we're charitable. Like that's Same old the, story. That's the yep. city I grew Same up. Same old story. Yeah. <laughs> um, and as much as I love my neighbors, I know that they'd rather be uh, co-workers with me than neighbors. Mm. Uh, and that's why I do a lot of work in diversity, equity, inclusion, institutional diversity, equity, inclusion. So going into mm. workplaces. Yeah. Uh, my goal, of course, is uh, to prevent the types of neighborhoods that I grew up in from ever being even possible to exist in the United States and around the world. Um, in order to do that, you have to go at doing the work of infrastructure building. Uh, but in order to build infrastructure, you have to say that there is a foundation for everything we build. And so um, a lot of my actual work is leaning on uh, my background in economics. Um, uh, my, my studies were in economics, um, as well as social theory public policy, so laws and government and civics and all that kind yeah. of stuff. Um, and then social justice work, because um, I got a, a, my butt handed to me when I took all that I knew about social change. And then when Mike Brown was killed in 2014 in Ferguson um, and the United States erupted in protests as black people came together mm -hmm. to say, our lives do not matter and they must matter. Um, I was really thrust into that work uh, when I took on the work of, of um, um, Civil, civic de demonstrations and protesting. Mm -hmm. um, and I learned the limits of philanthropy because I've been working in philanthropy and I learned that you can't pay your way out of this. Um, as Dr. King said, you know, um, you can't, uh, a law, uh, 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 a law uh, can stop a, a person from lynching me and that's a start, but it doesn't mean that they'll ever like me. Mm. Um, that's the reality of it. Um, and so I pivoted my work uh, away from like direct service nonprofits, right? Like help the kids, tutoring programs, yeah. um, food programs, these types of things, which are more responses to poverty and civic depravity. Yeah, it's not the systemic problem. Yeah, no, sort of, no, yeah. not at all. No, it's yeah. triage, right? Yeah. It's, it's triage, and it's 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 important, and um, um, uh, it's important work that is also insufficient. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I looked at the other side of it and I said, well, what's missing? Institutional people who understand direct action, who understand the role of speaking up and speaking out. And I found that there are a lot of whistleblowers in companies, people who are Interesting. You know, like myself, who are the uh, generation that grew up with the Civil Rights Act and grew up with the Voting Rights Act and Equal Pay Act and all these other statutory acts that people say should mean you're liked. You're, you belong, you are empowered, you are paid equally. And they simply do not mean that. Mm. And so I, I pivoted my life around to not just be about institutional change and helping young people where I was living and helping to raise money for really important social projects and NGO work and nonprofit work, um, but instead to go directly into the source, go to the bylaws of organizations and institutions that were nonprofits, go into the articles of incorporation of a corporation to go into the employee handbooks to find out where harm was permissible and there was no consequence mm -hmm. for it. Right. Um, to go into the, um, the meetings with the boards of directors to see what their governance documents look like that created opportunity as well as allow for harm. Um, I'm all about, all about going into the formative documents like the US Constitution, right, which mm -hmm. is 
a, a shallow, you know, uh, I think a very shallow and slightly well-intentioned and ass backwards of attempt at creating a more perfect union mm -hmm. um, that was so bad that it had to be amended 17 times. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the reason why we needed a civil rights act was because the constitution didn't guarantee civil rights. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the reason why we have an equal pay act was because the constitution as it's written, doesn't guarantee that women will be paid the same as men. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the intent when it was set up to be flexible later, to yeah. be accountable later. And so yeah. justice informed my company, um, is a movement to create a social order that holds the ambitions uh, as well as holds the protective capacities and requirements of a diverse world, a world that's always been diverse and also always segregated, and to incrementally make sure that it maintains that diversity while it uh, also mitigates the effects of separation and exclusion and hopefully gets us to one nation, one world under all. Yeah. And before we get into Justice of Forms a bit more, your parents were they any influence in your in your work today and and were they part of your your kind of growth into this world yeah i mean my mom i caught my mom my butterfly um because she's like a, she's like a butterfly to me she she's so curious um and she was a woman who when she raised me she told me a couple of things she said one you're going to be a renaissance man mm. you're going to be a renaissance man xavier you're going to be a master of many things you're going to be a, a knowledgeable of many things a jack of all trades perhaps a master of none um, and so she made sure I knew poetry and philosophy and could paint and could sing and, you know, was a, was a traveler and all these types of things. And so um, right. she influenced my ability now to really connect well with people of all different backgrounds. Um, she used to always, the other thing she would tell me is um, to master useless information because it's useful to someone. Absolutely. I agree with that. How, yeah, absolutely. So that's why I can do work around the world. That's why I can go in front of rooms of people who don't look, sound, or come or, or, or act like I do. And yeah. I can create relationship in the first five minutes of meeting them. Um, my dad was also a community organizer and an entrepreneur. I am a community organizer and entrepreneur. Uh, yeah. Community organizer, less so. Um, but his work was all for the website. And he did the work of community change and, um, you know, I like to think that Justice Informed was the company he was trying to build when he died. Mm. Um, okay. You know, he, That's interesting. He started a company called Sustainable Communities and Associates. And right. uh, unfortunately, it was the 90s. And, um, you know, when people, people didn't honor his contracts. So mm. I grew up hungry with my brothers. Right. And he was a black man. And he also harbored a level of resentment about his environment and his treatment mm. as a veteran. Yeah. Um, and his allegiance to a country that still did not acknowledge him. And yeah. that turned into all types of mental health challenges and dependencies and stuff. And, you know, I've learned to love and learn from my father's legacy, though he was taken very soon from me. Mm -hmm. um, I get to read about him. And everywhere I go in Chicago, people are like, you're Paul Ramey's son? Oh, man, without him, we wouldn't have had this golden dunk. Man, Paul fought for the Green Line train for years. Oh, I used to work. We used to protest together. We used to do these. You know, just, oh, that's amazing. It's, it's wild to see how far he reached. But, um, you know, the effect of carrying all of that was real. And he is not here for many reasons, partly mm -hmm. because of the effect of being a black man in America and a black man in Chicago right. who chose to love out loud in public. Yeah, um, well, that's very interesting and also very sad, but thank you for sharing. That's really interesting. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I, think, I think that um, 
It's just so wonderful to hear you talk about your dad and his work because it seems like you've had the ability to carry the torch. And it's amazing that you are part of a legacy that maybe you didn't even realize, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so anytime that you're trying to build infrastructure, as you were talking about, there's already one that's here, which means that there's a part of your work that's destroying some parts of the infrastructure, probably most of it or all of it. And I think that before we dive deeper into your work, it's important for us to define the language that we're going to be talking about. Because right before this podcast, when I was explaining um, the word Americans and what that could mean for some people. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. We did do that. We did do that. Uh, Some people, when they hear that word, they think white. Um, But for us, um, and how we grew up, and we grew up really based on our perspective of being a black girl, black boy, black woman, black man, respectively, we've been able to see Americans as so many different shades, genders, sexual orientation. So let's talk about, if you're okay with this, let's define some words really quick, okay? Go for it. Uh, Anti-racism, you are the first person (laughs) to introduce me to that word. I wanna say this was a few years ago. Really? Uh, Yes, my friend, it it was you. You and I were talking about Justice Informed, and you talked about how your work was or is a part of the anti-racism movement, and this was actually, I don't even know if you want me to say this, and I don't know if this is contradictory, I hope not, but we were sitting, we were sitting in Soho House as we were talking about this, okay. Um, There's a Brit on the line, like. Okay, fine. (laughs) Okay, great. Um, So what is anti-racism? What's the difference between that and non-racism, if that's even a thing? Yeah, so, um, so I'll say um, rather than non-racism, I think a better example would be like multiculturalism versus oh, anti-racism. Okay. Um, there are different schools of thought. So one of the misnomers, that, one of the mistakes that a lot of people make is they assume that these really deep conflicts around identity would be made so much more simple if people would just stop acting like it was complex. These are entire fields of study, right? Like when you I'll talk about like critical race theory, people never even, a lot of people have never even heard of it. Mm-hmm. Um, anti-racism, the decolonialism movement, um, uh, uh, indigeneity, uh, you know, uh, hyper-capitalism. Like there's so many, one of the first things that I always do whenever I'm leading trainings on identity theory, or I'm working particularly in uh, uh, corporate environments, because many people who work in corporate don't come from sociological backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And so literally like life is just happening. Poverty is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, racism is happening. And they're just like, man, that stuff is messed up. And it's like, no, it's more complex than that. <laughs> like, like that's not natural. That is a symptom and the evidence of yeah. the society we've created and continue to allow. And you're assuming, as, as opposed to like, you know, I, I was with a, a bunch of engineers in the uh, one of the US federal departments. We were working with them on DEI work. And it's all these engineers and like the head of US cybersecurity for this one department's there and you know, the head of the office of sciences over there. And I'm like, how long did it take y'all to learn what you know about what you know about what you know? And they're like, oh, years and years and years. It's like, okay, who has spent five hours this year just this year, in a year, five hours, five hours specifically studying racism in organizational management theory. 
Not one hand goes up. Mm. Five hours in a year, that's all I'm asking for. Who has ever specifically studied the economic policies that Dr. King, who y'all keep parroting every February uh, during Black History Month, has actually studied the economic policies that he offered Lyndon ba President Lyndon Bain Johnson to consider as they were constructing the Civil Rights Act of 1964? Not one hand. So what makes you assume that the things that create conflict and divide the nation and the world are things that you can simply simmer down into, we just need to all get along. We're all part of the human race. Mm -hmm. That is not how we got here. Mm -hmm. Any more than how you, I could protect the US and do all the cybersecurity stuff. Well, I, I have Norton antivirus at home. And um, I feel like <laughs> if we just like all, just put the US on Norton, we can stop the Russian attacks. No, 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 that's not how this works. That's not how this works. The level of violence and the creativity yeah. of the violence, as Dr. King talked about, the creativity of it is historical, generational, and it is inherited. Mm -hmm. And people have been building upon it year after year. And every time you think you close the gap on some hackers, they work really hard to find a new flaw and a new gap. That's the same yeah. thing with identity theory. So racism the structural and systemic commitment to the separation and denigration of people on the basis of the color of their skin, as opposed to anti-racism. Anti-racism is not just saying, racism is wrong. That's great. That doesn't mean that you stopped it. It's like sort of like saying, people shouldn't drown. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You gotta, jump, you gotta, you gotta jump in and save them. The breathing race, like you've never trained to be a lifeguard. <laughs> you have not in any way equipped yourself right. to actually do anything about it. Anti-racism is the, the act of identifying, equipping, ensuring, and being held accountable for the deconstruction of racism, wherever it may lie. Got it. And so, that is, so when I say going into the formative documents, it means that of the U.S., like the U.S. Constitution, I have to be very comfortable with saying, and I can't stop it, well, I think that that's a really offensive thing. And it's, I feel like it's a little harsh to say that America was based on white supremacy. Anti-racism requires that I look at it and say, okay, well, where was it built on the basis of upholding the sovereignty of black people? Mm. Yeah. Nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nowhere, exactly. <laughs> okay, yeah. well, to hell with black people. What about the, the indigenous? Nowhere? Okay. How, how, how about the Mexicans to the South? Nowhere. This was built on white supremacy. Yeah. <laughs> what are you talking yeah. about? Mm -hmm. You have no evidence. You just want me to center the fact that you're uncomfortable about a conversation where other people are unsafe. Yeah. And we're not going to center that. <laughs> so anti-racism is the active destabilization, de the identification, as well as the rooting out. The, it's an active thing. Multiculturalism on the other side, which was a much heralded wave of thinking in the identity politics world and uh, started around the 70s and 80s, multiculturalism is what most people are accepting right now. And that's simply saying that we're different and we need to respect our differences and be different together and know that difference is a power. It's what created things like um, uh, the business case for diversity. You hear that all the time, right? With a lot of these institutional diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, strategists, they always talk about the business case for diversity. Um, it came out of Harvard, uh, McKinsey, a bunch of other think tanks and universities and consulting firms created it. Um, and it, it basically, it, it, it in and of itself is also white supremacist. It is, it is a, uh, a Western capitalism uh, translation of what humanism should have been. Uh, mm -hmm. Simply saying that uh, if we cannot simply agree 
that people are valid and sovereign and should be dignified regardless of their production, then we have to value humans on the basis of their production. And in that way, we will uphold the importance of the difference of their identity. So, which I say, hell, the slave masters did that. You feed your slaves twice a day, they work harder. The business case for feeding your slaves twice a day. Yeah. yeah you know, you should be nice to people and dignity is important because you get more out of them. That doesn't mean you think they're human. That no. doesn't mean that you know how to engage them. That doesn't mean that you even know how they got to this position mm -hmm. and what your personal and professional decisions have to do with their current situation. It just means that you found a way to articulate how to make more money off of people who are hurting. Mm -hmm. And that's what's, that's what's winning in the world of diversity right now. You, everywhere I go, the first thing in corporations that they ask me is, how does this fit into the business case of diversity? And I'm very clear, it does not. This is about anti-racism. Mm -hmm. This is not about capitalism. This is not about gender theory. This is not to make the white woman feel included. This is not to make the white guy feel called in. This is about <laughs> <diversity> <laughs> inclusion. This is about anti-racism, meaning it's not about you and your feelings. It's about getting the work done. Yep. It's and about the policy, the bigger picture. Equity. Mm -hmm. Let's define that word. We were mm -hmm. also talking about how a lot of times people, even with the health or not health, in economics, you know, like background, yeah. they don't really understand what equity means in this uh, field. So can you define yeah. that first? Thank you for that question. Um, so I'll give the big three, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Diversity is butts in seats, right? Uh, were we all there and were we different? <laughs> a very very low ball. All there and different. This is, I love that. I love that. This is a bottom shelf old fashioned at the Four Seasons, right? <laughs> the, the cheapest, nastiest well drink you can have, and still say you're at the bar. Uh, we were there, and we were different. We were there. Um, that's diversity. Uh, inclusion is we were there, and we were all different, and we got to talk. You got to talk. People got to speak. They got to be heard. They had a seat at the table and a microphone for a moment. <laughs> for a moment. I mean, we're laughing about this, but this is so serious. And it's oh, no, no. I mean, I mean, this, but this, it's, this is amazing. like a cause for actual litigation. Like, this is yeah, just, absolutely. Yeah. Like, amazing. And, and the reason why I have such a reaction, you know, by laughing at it is because from my perspective, it seems so obvious. Exactly, that's what I mean. Acknowledge, yeah. but, but, but then we have to also acknowledge that people have been living in such blissful ignorance because it's served them so well in a mm -hmm. way that disenfra disenfranchises so many people that when they hear this, they're actually like, oh my gosh, wow, I've never seen it that way. Well, they've never had mm -hmm. to. Or they've no. never acknowledged it. And even in not acknowledging it, it's not like they were forced to. Um, so that's why it's funny because it's just so ridiculous in my mind. So we can still talk about serious things and have like sort yeah. of humorous. Um, oh, absolutely. Well, I, I think it's, it's integral to have humor when you're talking about something serious, actually. I mm -hmm. think it's, it's important to try and remain positive and, and kind of keep a, uh, a good frame of mind about things. I think humor is important. I think mm -hmm. that being honest and true about where humor is about something that's funny versus where it's a coping mechanism. Yeah. Um, we we, we should be really clear. Because in my field, a that's lot of people use very, very elaborate coping mechanisms mm -hmm. to get around and away from the accountability and the deep relationship 
that uh, through my firm, Just Informed, we're trying to call people into. Um, but much like a bad relation, a bad intimate relationship or a personal relationship, a lot of it has to do with the fact that one person is operating under a certain expectation of commitment and a demand for standards that the other person is completely unwilling to either acknowledge, to identify, acknowledge, mm -hmm. or comply with. Mm -hmm. uh, and they maintain that, that system of violence, which is what it is, uh, the system of violence um, through the perpetuation, one, of silence and the insistence of silence. Why do we have to keep talking about that sort of a thing? Uh -huh. um, and that uh, in itself is violent, right? Because I also want oh, yeah. to acknowledge the fact that we're not just talking about physical violence. Anytime right. that you're not even allowed to speak, that is violent. When your voice is not, is not heard, um, or valued that is a type of violence so. and, and but and by the way this country one of the biggest things freedom of speech when you can have people I don't know who's been watching the Tiger King but when you have someone that <laughs> that can can say on camera to the world I am going to kill someone and they're allowed to do that and where other voices as we're talking about now are so stifled that there's there's something wrong with that system yeah, opinion. I mean, James, James Baldwin, he, he did this incredible interview with Dick Cavett uh, on the Dick Cavett show back in the day. And uh, if you've never seen it, go on to YouTube and just type in uh, James Baldwin, Dick Cavett show. Okay. Um, it's, it's an incredible expose on a masterful speaker um, and social identity theorist uh, and writer. He's an author, you know, James Baldwin. Um, but one of the things he talks about is, is the difference when black people say it. And he said, you know, you can have white men all across the country say, give me liberty or give me death. And they'll rally that and hear that as patriotism. And a black man says it and he takes on the trappings of the Black Panthers or takes on the trappings of Malcolm X or Martin Luther King. Uh -huh. He says, this country is a sham. This is a lie. We, which is essentially just saying, I want to live in truth. Yep. And let's be honest here, right? Yeah. Like the reason yeah. why Martin Luther King laid down his life and protested was because he insisted on calling the United States into a higher form of relationship that it said it was already engaged in. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're not a slave, so what's so bad about this? <laughs> they were demand, I mean, power and privilege demands appreciation for their mediocrity. I mean, that's the nature, that's the challenge mm -hmm. of the privilege, right? They demand appreciation for reaching the lowest bar of relationship. Um, and not only that, parroting what, what is had as a demonstration of relationship before people who should own the means of production. Means of production gets us to the definition of equity. I talked about diversity and inclusion. Equity is about reorganizing society to ensure that the uh, productive capacities of people uh, are not only owned and retained by the people who produce them, but reorganizing society in such a way that companies, organizations, institutions of any type or size, whether they be governmental or non-governmental, take responsibility for what happens outside of its doors on the basis of the, the, the dignification and the, the right to life that every human being has. Um, so for example, when we get companies involved in equity work, mm -hmm. I have to be real creative because it's, it's like, you start talking about being responsible for what's happening outside, the, 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 the definition of business in the neoliberal, uh, and I'll say utilitarian, very much uh, Keynes or, 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 or Milton Friedman-esque style of business is all about shareholder value protection, uh, uh, reducing costs at the, you know, at, by, any, by any means, these types. It has nothing to do with people, nothing to do with people. When I was studying ec economics, the people were called externalities. Wow. <laughs> like they were just like totally external. Like they wow. were just like market players. Um, you know, this is the, this is the, this is how we're being taught. Like I was taught this way, you know? And so when I went back to Lawndale, Jen, back to our old neighborhood with my econ degree and training, 
and years of working at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange as a futures and commodities trader, I didn't even know how to relate to my own neighborhood because I thought of people as labor units. Mm, wow. Like literally, that was the terminology wow. that I went home with. And it took years for me to create a vocabulary that was not only accurate, but it was also empathetic. Mm. And that's what's often missing. Uh, equity is about humanizing people and being responsible uh, to them. It's about what, what, you know, this, this inescapable network of mutuality that we're all engaged in. We have to insist that we agree that the network of mutuality is inescapable. It doesn't matter if you don't recognize me. I'm here, mother... Like... <laughs> yeah. Like, like, you know, everybody who said art doesn't matter, art doesn't pay, you shouldn't be an artist. Okay, COVID-19 got y'all sitting in your houses looking at art. <laughs> yeah. 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 Games, yeah. All of this stuff. Well, we don't need to be paying those people. They're worth, <laughs> worth $48 an hour. I can't yeah. believe that these, these, these restaurant folks think that they're worth that. Okay, <laughs> well, how much is the consultant worth right now? Mm. It ain't nothing but time and crisis that brings you to your knees to understand that all people are valuable. And Absolutely. always happens in time. Uh, it is the fallacy of our, of our arrogance towards, towards time and our historical blindness. And, and let me be very clear that, Jen, what you call the, um, the blissful ignorance uh, is actually uh, only maintained through military might. Uh, the only reason why people can be ignorant and powerful is because at the end of the day, they can demand their right to own the means of production and right. to continue to own the dynamics of the situation uh, at, the, at the point of force. That force can be potential and nonverbal, meaning you'll be fired for demanding to be treated as human, right? Or it can be physical in the space of property protections, right? Anti-racism requires that we look at the military. It requires that we look at domestic policing. It requires that we look at, at the end of the day, force is still maintaining areas of violence within our society under the auspices of creating safety. The question is safety for whom? Much like when I was protesting during the Black Lives Matter movement, the police were not in the streets protecting protesters from protesters. They were standing outside Bulgari and Louis Vuitton and Macy's. Mm. They were protecting property, mm -hmm. property owners. As we were simply saying our lives matter, we don't care about no Macy's. We were yeah. trying to stop people from shopping. Yeah. Just so they can yeah. think about our lives. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're gonna go in there and take no shirts. <laughs> and even That's if we really did, interesting detail. <laughs> like, like we're calling you to a higher relationship. Why do right. you see that as civil disobedience? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so let me uh, so in I, I watched your TED talk actually, and mm -hmm. in it you say two good choices equals privilege. Yeah. Which I, which I, re I really like that statement and particularly the, the simplicity of the explanation because even the, the most vapid can understand that. But and as you've delved further into this world, are you finding that privilege looks a little different than it did 10 years ago or 20 years ago? Or are you still seeing the same issues in the same way that inspired you to choose this line of work? Um, mm. You know, I, well, privilege, privilege doesn't change, it just transfers. Privilege is a type of energy. Mm -hmm. um, it's always there. The question is, how is it being distributed? Um, let me be very clear, equity is about distribution at its core. Conversations on uh, institutional diversity and inclusion uh, become real dangerous things to talk about when you start talking about redistribution. 
Yes. Um, it's why economic warfare happens, right? Like we don't need to share with those people. They're not mm -hmm. us. Yes. Right. Like this, this, this distribution question is the marker, uh, the, the right to, I use the term means of production. If you know anything about economic theory, you know that I'm pulling that from Marx. <sighs> Marx. <laughs> not Marx. Quiet. Quiet. Oh gosh. Quiet. Uh, and in that, you know, with, with this privilege thing, I want to, I want to bring up this, this, this quote that this man said on Facebook. Um, he's this older white guy and this lawyer who works in the restorative justice practice, posed, she's a friend of mine and she opposed this question because in the US right now, everybody's talking about democratic socialism, socialism, millennials prefer socialism and all of this stuff. And she simply asked the question, how would you define socialism in its simplest terms? How'd you define it? Mm. This man said something that stopped me in my tracks. Cause I've, I've actually studied socialism. I've read the books, you know, Capitalism from a Russian perspective, capitalism from a, or, or socialism from a Russian perspective, World War II from the Russian, like I've already read all of this kind of stuff um, to, to know the distinction between capitalism and, and socialism um, and the many ways of, of, of managing government and economies in between that are a little bit of both, which is what we kind of have right now. Mm -hmm. um, and he said, to me, socialism, uh, he was talking about democratic socialism, so like Bernie Sanders type, not full mm -hmm. on socialism. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. And he said, um, each person produces according to their capacity and they receive only according to their need. Okay. The, okay. the level of honesty that you would have to have to live like that. So for instance, um, right now in America, it's hard to find hand sanitizer. It's hard to find toilet paper. It's hard yep. to find paper towels because of this, this uh, coronavirus. And I, was, I, I went to the grocery store once again, third time in three weeks. I go once a week to the store. I don't get out much anymore because we're supposed to be social distancing. And I went again looking for hand sanitizer and paper towels. And again, I uh, didn't find much. I've still not found any hand sanitizer. Um, but I did find six rolls of paper towels. And I found them on the top shelf in the very back <laughs> of a row in the supermarket. Well, thank God you're 11 feet tall, sir. Now, exactly. <laughs> I am six foot five, nearly two meters tall. Who else would have been able to see that? Right. Mm -hmm. Who could have seen that? Now. Others who were your similar height. People who are six foot five and a <laughs> I saw it clear as day. Not only, not only did I see it, I could reach it. Right. Ooh. I didn't ask for that. I didn't ask for that ability. Now, in the middle of a public health crisis with needed goods in a world of hoarding, what do I do? Mm. I take them all. Mm. I saw them. You didn't see them. That's on you. Mm. So I went, I immediately thought of this quote and I said, each produces according to their capacity. Well, I am tall. Right. And these are needed resources right now. Right. There's only six rolls left. I mean, the whole, the entire row, this is Mariano's, this is a massive superstar okay. supermarket. Yeah. It's this huge place, everything's gone. And so I pulled all six rows to the front of, mm. that, of that row and I took one. Mm -hmm. My capacity was that I could reach anything, not only reach, I could see it in things that other people could not see. And in the moment of crisis is when the question is, now what type of a neighbor am I? Right. What type of friend am I? Right. What if they never even know? Wow. What if they never even know? Who cares? 
They won't know. This store, I could make up all types of excuses to be less human. Ah, they can find some. They probably got 18 rolls in the back. If somebody would just ask, then they would receive. And they go and buy another, you know, parable of life. Ask and you shall receive. Squeaky wheel gets the grease. You, you can make up all types of crap to justify the inhumanity you feel entitled to in a moment of global crisis. But the reality is, is by latching onto an abundant mindset, which is the opposite of the centering the self-centering that privileged people do, where they say, no, 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 scarcity. Scarcity, 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 fear is my God. One of the things I always try to remind people is we have to listen for fear and never, ever to it. Mm. Never to it. Fear makes you do terrible, terrible things. Yeah. Terrible things. But if you listen for it, you'll know exactly where a person's God is. Mm. You'll know exactly what they'll insist you bow to. You'll know exactly where the line is where they'll say, now you're an other, you're one of them. Other happens at the point of fear. Abundance is saying, though I do not have currently everything, I have enough. I need to then have a definition mm -hmm. for enoughness. Mm -hmm. The reason why socialism is idealistic, and let me just be clear, about every eight to 10 years, socialism has to bail out capitalism. Right. Okay. <laughs> Let's just be real about this, y'all. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> in America. Yeah. Let's be real, real about that. that keeps happening. Never, yeah. uh, and I'm not trying to make a, a push for socialism. I'm just saying that, again, uh, this work is about calling people into a relationship mm -hmm. that they said they already had. Mm -hmm. You know, my work is about introducing people to folks that they thought they were already choosing mm -hmm. across town, mm -hmm. across the cubicle who you thought you were already being friend to, already being proximate to, already being humane and just to. And if the accounting was done and they were allowed to, to, to be the establishment of the definition of relationship, as well as the accounting of harm, then it wouldn't be so bliss, it would, you wouldn't be able to be so blissfully ignorant about mm -hmm. the violence you insist on. Um, and so the privilege, the privilege has not changed. It simply transfers. I have the opportunity to be just as violent as anyone else. One of the things that keeps me up at night is, you know, how people like me, African-American people who, uh, or, or anybody who comes from lower income uh, uh, status in life or lower class in society, at some point, the slave becomes free and they have to make a decision. Do they simply pick up the whip or do they reorganize the means of production around the word labor? Hmm. You can inherit the whip and become the master. And I think a lot of people, when they listen to fear and they also center their righteous anger, they have a right to be angry about what happened, but their response is still violent. Hmm. To simply pick up the whip and say, now I'm the master. So and that was justice for them, yeah. but I don't think that's love. So Xavier, what examples of violence do you think being a master can cause to our fellow neighbors? <laughs> Everything we're seeing. <laughs> I, mean, the, I mean, step one, the, the low-hanging fruit is the insistence on silence. Right. Right, the insistence on the demand for silence, right? Um, you know, when they say like, um, uh, you know, we, we, we want to speak up, we're the voice for the voiceless. You hear a lot of philanthropists talk like that. A lot of people working in NGOs. Uh, the voice of the voiceless, you know, and I forget uh, the woman who said it, but she said there's no such thing as people who are, who are voiceless. Um, uh, they, they, are, mm. they are either being suppressed or they would rather be not heard. Mm. But there are no voiceless people. People are always screaming out of their pain. Mm. 
So let's just be real clear about that. Ain't nobody that ever got slapped that didn't say ouch. <laughs> uh, like that's just a normal yeah, reaction. Right. You just ain't listening that's or right. you muffled them. Yeah. Um, and so, so, so this, 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 this notion of violence and what's possible, um, you know, I think it starts with understanding what type of relationships do we really want to have? Okay. Right. What type of relationship do we want to have? Do we want to have an honest, accurate, accountable relationship? Um, do we believe that there's more, you know, that starts with the question of fear and scarcity. Like, do you even believe there's something better for you in life? Mm -hmm. um, and then secondly, if you do, then who are the people to do that with? Who are the people to do that around? Mm -hmm. um, do you believe that your work is, you're, you're better at um, the triage work, right? Like the work I talked about with nonprofits, right? right? It's right. good and insufficient. Just like my work is good and insufficient. The harm is still happening. If ain't nobody running up soup kitchens, I can be talking all I want about violence and, and, and distribution and economics and uh, equitable uh, uh, economies and all of this, but poor people still need food. Mm -hmm. You still got to do that work. Mm -hmm. But that work without changing policy means that you're always going to have to feed them. And as my Bible says, the poor will always be with you mm -hmm. because you've not changed the infrastructure. You've not changed so the with, with that in mind, do, do you work with any policymakers if you had the opportunity? Now, what, what, one of the biggest issues I've personally seen in my experiences in the US, especially over the last two, 12 months, is um, politicians picking party over policy and, and really focusing on that political power. And it's, that's terrifying to me, in all honesty, um, as a human being and, and as a resident in this country. Um, obviously, the impeachment being a superb example. And by the way, the Republicans and the Democrats are both you know, they're both failed at that. Um, uh, so, so have you had the opportunity to work with anyone in these kind of roles and, and had the opportunity to influence anyone in that respect? Yeah, um, I get pulled into public policy stuff every now and then. Um, in Chicagoland, what I'm most- He's most so humble, he's so humble. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you I know, I know you, sir. But <laughs> oh, you thought you thought I was just being like playing it small. Yes, oh, playing it real oh, small. I thought you were like this dude. No, um, no, no. <laughs> playing it small. No. Um, no, look, I this work is rough because the harvest is plenty and the workers are few. Like everybody, you know, people just ain't coming in. You know, it's like we got a world of volunteers right now. You know, you know how annoying that is for everybody to see a problem. And just want to volunteer their way out right. of it. Right. Like, now, like everybody ain't called to volunteering. Some of y'all supposed to be, you know, protesting. Some of y'all supposed to be not just philanthropists. Y'all supposed to be changing the way business is defined. Like, come on, y'all copping out here. Um, but in terms of policymakers, uh, uh, yeah, I do work with them. I work most often on, on policing and policing reform. Um, oh, I want to be very clear. Um, I'm a prison abolitionist. Um, I'm not a prison reformer. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a budding prison abolitionist. That means that I do not believe that cages are uh, a response to uh, uh, the rehabilitation of hum humans, um, nor do I see it as a tenable uh, outcome for the, sustainment, uh, the sustainability of safety in neighborhoods. I don't believe that you can put a human spirit in a cage and get anything great out of it. Um, and, and so much like the folks who, those hippies who believed in, uh, de, uh, uh, denuclearization, you know, I'm simply saying that there's a too far, there's, there's a spectrum of responses that we have here and that's going too far. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, once you use the nuclear option, everybody else has to. Mm -hmm.
cages are the nuclear option of correction. And uh, I, a lot of people get upset at me because like, what about the murders and the rapists and all of that? And I'm like, yeah, they're, they're gonna exist with the other options too, though they account for 14% of all violent crime. We've currently created a system where 100% of all crime is judged based on the fears that we have about 14% of it. Mm. Um, and, and, and a lot of people that look like me are caught up in it. And more often than not, uh, are part of that 86% um, nonviolent offenders. Now, I get pulled into a lot of conversations on that kind of stuff. So I end up working with like state's attorneys, end up working with uh, prosecutors, end up um, like, so for instance, when Chicago was sued by the federal government um, after uh, the US uh, um, attorney, uh, Eric Holder, um, uh, uh, did an evaluation, basically an evaluation on the city of Chicago. City of Chicago was found to be uh, not only repressive, but racist as it relates to its policing. Um, uh, the federal, the city of Chicago then refused to implement changes. They were sued by the U.S. Wow. government. Uh, that's, they were, well, the, the suing and the evaluation and the implementation, the reorganization plan is called a consent decree. Uh -huh. a, a consent decree was placed over the city of Chicago's police department, which they had to comply with. Part of that required the overhauling of our uh, police oversight uh, institution, which at the time was called IPRA. It was reorganized into a new organization called COPA, the Civilian Office of Police Accountability, um, where people were first, civilians were first. Um, and so they asked me to come in and work on the selection for their first uh, chief, um, uh, things like that. Uh, I've worked on uh, projects uh, I remember one of the hardest, oh God, have you ever, imagine being on a panel as the only prison abolitionist with a bunch of FBI investigators, <laughs> U.S. attorneys, like, I, I was, <laughs> oh, wow. it was hilarious. I mean, I, I'm sitting there like, okay, uh, hi, all right. You, hey. you know they're watching you. You do know. Dude, that, right? Yo, Feds is always watching. Always like, watching. Always watching. Always watching, like. You know, one of the biggest things my organizing group helped to do was Freedom Square, right? The U.S., you know, Chicago police has 7,000 people disappeared in a facility in Lawndale. I did not know that. Yeah, that was one. In 2015, we launched a, 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 what, what was at the time the longest sit-in in Chicago history. Uh, where We occupied a space outside of this illegal detention facility that the Chicago police said was a <clears throat> inventory facility. Um, mm. <laughs> which we had tons of folks from Lawndale Garfield Park like no 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 man they held me up in there they electrocuted me we had you know um, interviews of folks who, 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 who have been cattle prodded who've been beaten senseless um, held in cages in that building and you ask the police eh, eh, inventory no we just keep supplies in there um, mm. and so we, we staged a sit-in for uh, about 45 50 days outside that building wow. uh, sleeping outside yeah. um, protesting building community uh, envisioning a world where um, in one of the most uh, policed and violent and disadvantaged and divested black communities in the entire city of Chicago, we imagined what a world would be like if we were so accountable to one another um, that we could hold each other safe. Um, and as well, beautiful as that sounds, that was not successful. Uh, I just want to be real about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, that kind of stuff, you know, I, I, I get pulled into that kind of stuff. It's hard. People don't want to be accountable to each other. It's not like we didn't know that, but it's, I think the attempt matters. And, um, uh, you know, that, that stands as a very resonant learning experience for me and all the folks that I locked arms with in it. Um, and at the time I was working at the University of Chicago, so you can imagine how hard it is to 
hold a job at the University of Chicago, which has the largest private police force in the country. And then on the side at night, and, you know, during the day, I'm bringing my students out to the protest site and all that. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. Well, uh, I mean, um, hmm. this country in general, it's lucky to have people like you. It really is because the work you do is, is though it's arduous and, and stressful and difficult and, and what feels at times almost impossible, um, you strive to those to achieve your goals and not just the goals for you, but for the community and that, and that, you know, includes everyone. And that's really inspiring and amazing. So thank you uh, for sharing that. But um, <laughs> I want, I, but I do want to ask for like going back to like the anti-racism and the general idea about all of this as a general citizen in America, right? People who aren't involved in activism such as you are, what can, what are some things that general people and how ways that we can change our lives to improve that mentality and improve that message and, and try and work towards that in your day-to-day -day life. Can yeah. I just say something really quickly and tell me Please. if I'm wrong, Xavier. Go for I it. I feel like you get this question all the time. Yeah, I do. And it probably feels frustrating to get this question. I don't wanna project anything onto you but that's just what i'm feeling at the moment so if that's is that your feeling if it is please express that express why yeah please yeah I'm but then curious. if you could still answer it because there's still a lot of blissfully ignorant people out there so i just wanted to acknowledge that this is probably the one question you always what do we do xavier what do we do how do we solve the problem how do we do no no, I'm not. I, that's not the question I'm asking, by the way. Just to clarify, I'm not asking how I solve the problem or how the general citizens of the US do solve the problem. I'm asking how general citizens can do their little bit. And I'm not saying I'm expecting people to go out and change their lives and change the way they do things. And, but there are absolutely things, and whether this is a regular question and a frustrating one, it, I think it is an important one, absolutely, because there are things we can do. And, and the ignorance, even myself, I, there's a lot of things that I just don't understand. Even listening to Xavier during this conversation has been so informative and interesting to me. And I've picked up on so many amazing things. So I think this question is, is valid and I think it is important because I think it can be beneficial to people having a little bit of basic understanding of what we can do individually. I hear you. Um, Jen, the question doesn't offend me. Um, uh, partly, and I, and I know it does, and it also doesn't annoy me, it doesn't disturb me or anything. Um, it frustrates me, um, but it doesn't do the other things. It only frustrates me because, um, uh, yes, I do get it a lot, and it's sort of like, you know, again, the harvest is plenty, the workers are few. Imagine being an orchard keeper, a farmer, planting all these trees, and they're all full of fruit. And everybody's walking around like, I'm so hungry. Where do we find the apples? And I'm like, look <laughs> up, you dumb. <laughs> like, read a book. Like, look at a movie. Believe history. Like, I don't know. Start there. Like, <laughs> um, so, so, so what I would say is, um, and I think it's important to say this, the reason why it's only frustrating, it's not upsetting, it's not, you know, uh, a, a bad question, uh, is because that's the work that I signed up for right like um th th this is my work this is my work i have to prepare my heart to remind people what they said they wanted that they did not actually commit to mm. there's not a person i've ever met that said i've committed to racism and i hope the blacks and the jews die i've never heard a person say that mm -hmm. but they've all said 
I believe it's important that you exist and I have no, no insistence on being accountable for the perpetuation of your life. That's the fact, that's, that's what they've said on the other side without using words. I am not accountable to you, to history, to anything. I'm accountable to my life, my family. That's it. I do not believe that we are all caught in some inescapable network of mutuality, but I do insist on respecting the man who said it on his birthday every year, and his name is Dr. Martin Luther King. Now let's use another quote from Dr. King to shut up the black people, <laughs> right? Like that's the, that, that's the world we live in. You know, you know, David, the hardest thing about this stuff is that I, I know with this work, I live in a world that loves a good martyr and they hate a prophet. This is a world that kills prophets. That if you speak about what we're all experiencing, if you speak with any level of not clairvoyance, simply reflection, accurate reflection about what we are doing and how it is what we've already seen if we considered the past, we're living it again. It's not clairvoyance, I'm not predicting the future. I'm simply saying what we're doing more accurately. And I'm being honest about the, the, the cards we're playing and the cost of this type of a game. You get shot down for that. You lose your job for that. You'll be, you'll be called, he, he, just, he just talks about like social issues a lot. Like you'll be that dude. And instead of saying, not, not that we need more of that, we need less of that because we shouldn't need it, but we do need it. And that's okay. That's my work, right? Much like, you know, we wish we didn't need firefighters, but there's gonna be a fire. <laughs> so we need firefighters. You know? We wish we didn't have public safety, but there's going to be crime and violence. We need some public safety, even though I'm not here for the police. Uh, you know, like, there's a more just and equitable form of public safety than the form of institutionalized policing as we've seen it in America. Uh -huh. um, but I wish this world didn't insist on martyrs. I really mm -hmm. wish. Um, I wish we didn't insist on it. That, but that's the violence we insist on. Yeah. Um, and so uh, what I would tell the everyday person is believe the folks you don't live near when they say what's happening. That's believe a really good, really good line. I, I really like that. Just believe yeah. them. It's believability. Yeah. You know, the basis of my work is about uh, redistributing credibility to speak and credibility to be. Um, equity work is fundamentally in order to to speak, you have to have credibility to speak, and then you have to have credibility to be heard, and then you have to have more credibility to be taken seriously. Yeah. That's all about credibility. When we go to an Ivy League college, it's not because necessarily the education is so much better than another one. It's simply because that they have organized credibility over time. Many of them built their institutions on the vestiges of slavery in and of itself. They organized the economic uh, uh, resources to then create institutions. Those institutions hired locals that bought favor. That favor over time created the opportunity for legacy students. Legacy students create and what they do in the world that is insistent also on exclusion and, and segregation and only some types of folks getting opportunities. Those folks don't fight it in their time. They delegate it to the next generation. They give back philanthropically and then tell everybody, the, the, it, we have to invest in the children. The children will change. And then the children don't change as soon as they start accumulating more stuff. Like, we got to stop that. Yeah, we'll break the cycle. Absolutely. We got to break that cycle. Like if yeah. you think life is about accumulation, you're, you are fundamentally against everything I'm doing. If you think the whole purpose of you going to work is to make mm -hmm. money, mm -hmm. money is simply a, ah, ah, yeah, it, it's, it's, Believe people. 
when they say it hurts. And if you have an identity that has always been at the center, regardless of your current situation, know what that means. Know what that means. You know, and also for me as an African-American, know that the dynamics of your situation can change. Yeah. I can go all across the world right now and get a welcome reception. I've spoken in front of, I've spoken in arenas in Canada with 20,000 people with Justin Trudeau and all types of folks. Like I've, I got a TED talk out there. Like, come on now, I can't be sitting there. I'm one of the disadvantaged ones. Like, I'm not one of the disadvantaged ones. I was one of the disadvantaged right. ones. I'm not sitting up in here. Like we got a global recession going on and my company's doing fine. Like get out of here, X. You know how many people that look like me or people of color or, you know, folks over time, they, 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 they forget that they came out of slavery and they have to reorganize the means of production. That's your new job, not lamenting the slavery, though we must lament. And especially for those who were the slave masters, they can never expect appreciation. They can never expect absolution. They have to work, go and step into the work of anti-slavery, mm-hmm. anti-racism, yeah. not just mm-hmm. multiculturalism and uh, uh, capitalism instead of like not slavery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not just that one step further it's that 20 steps further yeah we got capitalism with slavery right now the only you know the 13th amendment in the u.s, US right. constitution allows for slavery on the basis yeah. of uh having a criminal background yeah you're in jail you can legally be a slave yeah under capitalism yeah your yeah. license plate may have been made by a prisoner Seriously. well if you're in the state of new york right now your hand sanitizer is currently made by prisoners Wow. Did not know that. Yeah, wow. because the um, market wouldn't wouldn't charge cheap for it cheaply enough when COVID nineteen broke. So the, the the governor issued the order, said we're going to have the inmates do it. Six bucks a gallon, Purell won't sell it at that price. Amazing. Um, all right, before we um, kind of uh, soften it up a bit as we finish up in, with some games, have you got anything else, Jen, that you would like to <laughs> to ask Xavier? You see Jen's face right now. <laughs> I do. She's. I don't. I can't. I don't, I'm not. I'm not sure what she's doing. But she's uh, serious about something. I'm gonna. I'm gonna look the up game. the hand sin- sanitizer um, reference that you made. I'm gonna look that up. Uh, yeah. Anyway, America. Um, but I just wanted to acknowledge um, your transparency. Um, I wanted to acknowledge how you are continuing to do and raise the difficult work of social justice crusaders before you. And I just wanted to let you know that you are a part of such a strong legacy of people that you may or may not physically be related to, who knows, okay? But Harriet Tubman, um, Sojourner Truth, Martin Luther King Jr., as you mentioned, Malcolm X, um Alex Baldwin you know all of them and I really hope that you continue to speak truth to power um I hope that you will be one of the few prophets that get to an old age like a Harriet Tubman um instead of you know Remember how she got to an old age? She started working for the military. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> she got a government job. She did. I mean, okay. She, she went into the spy. She was a no- yeah, you know. Like she I'm not about to go step time. into the penal institutions yes. of America. Like I'm I understand, but I still, we still want you to be a prophet and get to old age instead of you know the the other I alternative, right? That I you spoke too. of. 
Um, so just thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much for, you know, every time we talk, there's always a reorganization in this brain. About, <laughs> <laughs> there's literally a movement of furniture every time that we talk of how I um, have not been proactively anti-racist. And because of you, I have recently come to understand that I have contributed to racism. I used to believe that Black people could not be racist, but that is not true. Even being in corporate America, there have been um, certain um, corporate cultural, um, corporate cultural just, I don't know, activities that I've been involved in that has not, it hasn't benefited my people, you know. So just thank you so much for the conversations in the past and thank you for this conversation. Um, so that's all I wanted to add. And before we go on to fun, fun stuff, do you wanna say anything else, X? Actually, I have, I have one request and this is really important, David, because- Please do it, of course. Justice Informed has a very um, unique and profound foundation and it's a Christian foundation. Yeah. And I really think it's important for you to speak um, to that. So can you tell us um, how your work um, relates to the social justice work of Jesus Christ himself? <laughs> I mean, that's what it is. I mean, just in a few, in a few yeah. sentences. I can't. So, so the first thing I'll say is if you want to hear me go deep on that, I did do a podcast with a guy named Pete Enns. Um, and uh, it's called The Bible for Normal People. If you look up The Bible for Normal People, Xavier Ramey, you'll hear that podcast. We go deep on uh, the intersection of Christian faith, spirituality, Jesus's gospel, uh, and business, uh, global economics and social justice and all that kind of stuff. So I riff on that for about 30, 45 minutes. Um, but in the, the short version of it is, is that, uh, you know, I'm a Christian. I'm a practicing Christian. Um, and I believe Jesus Christ. I believe in God. Um, I believe that, you know, the relationships that are modeled in the work of the cross are what we're called to and an accurate discernment of what our cross is to bear is really important. So for instance, Jen, when you were like, you know, we want you to live to a ripe old age and all of this. And I'm like, look, my Bible says, I send you out as a prophet. I send you out as a sheep amongst the, the wolves to the slaughter, not so that they'll listen, but because I know they won't, but they'll know that a prophet walked among them. Mm -hmm. They'll know, and they'll never be able to deny that. Because at our mm -hmm. core, at our core, I believe this, people have a desire to be true. I believe that, that people have a desire to be true, meaning that they are what they think they are. If they think they're good, they actually are. If they think they're just, they actually are. They have a desire to do it. My work is simply about holding up a mirror. Faith is a mirror. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All I do all day, is I practice the God-given gift I have of linguistics and shooting it straight. And I simply hold up a mirror and I say, if this is the definition of that word, is that what you're doing? That's what you evidenced, Jim. You were like, it's like a reorganization of furniture. All, I, all I'm doing is I'm using words to hold up a mirror and I'm simply saying, you can't move until you say, is this what you thought it was? Mm -hmm. You cannot move. I won't let you go mm -hmm. until you are honest about this. Now, that's an invitation-based process. My consultative strategy, the way I do, I'm a, I run a consulting firm. 
I sell advice. I sell strategies for a living. I sell ideas. That's what I do. Ideas, words create ideas. Ideas shape narratives. Narratives that we believe in or do not agree believe in require strategies to create them in the world. That's what I do for a living. Step back. Same thing Jesus did. Mm-hmm. Two, two-pronged strategy. One, establish a standard for life. I'm not sitting here trying to call you out. I'm simply saying this is the standard. What's up with you in it? Mm. Right? Like you in or you out? I'm not saying you got to leave the multiculturalism party. I'm just saying the anti-racism party is a rocket. You want to come <laughs> <over> here? <laughs> like, come on over here. This is dope. We ain't got no fragility. We ain't scared to talk to black people. The, like, like, this is great. No shame. Wonderful stuff. Like, you want to come over here? But I, that means I have to be modeling. That's why you hear me talk about this with such lightness. Like, I love talking about it because I had to do the work of moving through my initial anger about my past, my life, my father's mm-hmm. dead. I had to work through that. I had to therapy through that to get to the point where it's in the book of James, it says, consider it all joy. Mm-hmm. Get to that point and then say, yo, I got through all of that inner work. I even was able to build a company on top of it. I'm able to be prosperous in the world. I can listen for fear and not to it. Mm-hmm. You telling me you want to stay over there scared to talk about race? For real? <laughs> is it that, dope? Is it that awesome? Like you really want to live like why do you want to live like that? Yeah. Come on over. Come, please come over. The water is just fine. And that is the invitation that I saw Christ make. Where he was saying, Look, you at the well, you got two dudes in the crib, you sleep like you ain't got like ah, come on, you really want to live like that? You scared to talk to me just because I'm a rabbi. You really want to live like that? <laughs> like, come on higher, sister. I ain't mad at you. I ain't judging you. But the moment you say you want to come higher, all I'm going to do every day when you wake up is hold up a mirror and say, do you remember what you said you were? That's all I'm going to do. That's accountability and relationship. I'm calling you higher. Mm-hmm. You cannot keep doing what you're doing. You cannot be racist. You cannot build institutions like that. You cannot want to hide all six roles for yourself. You can't keep Mm. doing that. I invite you to a higher way of living. And that living touches every moment of your life, every breath you take, every business deal you write, every person you choose to be in relationship with. It touches everything. You are not off the hook for anything. But this invitation isn't going to feel like I'm hooking you. Mm. I'm hooking a future you said you wanted that you think you're already living in. Yeah. I'm higher. Brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's fantastic. And, uh, and really, this has been so informative for me. Um, and I'm so grateful to have, have had this time to talk to you about it and listen to your, your journey and, and what, you, what you would like to achieve. Because for me, that's the most significant thing here is, is I mean, I don't think there really is an end goal per se, like one specific thing, but it's a, it's a, it's a global thing, right? And it's a, mm-hmm. a, a social thing and, and it's a never ending target. And, and that's really interesting because uh, to, to dedicate your life to a never-ending target is really interesting in itself um, and to keep striving to, to improve and evolve on that. And so that's it's really um, just quite inspiring. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, okay. So, um, so we'll play a couple little games with you before we let you go. Um, the first <laughs> one is... What to expect here. <laughs> it's, honestly, it's so easy. It's just a little bit of fun. Um, and the first one uh, is Brooklyn or Brentwood bread. And just to, just to say, um, I'm, I'm not a religious person, but I'm, I'm going to actually read, because I, I think religion is very important in this world and in the sense that uh, whether I believe it or not, if, if people do and, and they 
get what they would, you know, get what's going to help them in their lives and, and guide their lives moralistically or however else. I think it's absolutely significant and important. So, um, so this, uh, the one we picked this week for the Brentwood or Brooklyn bread uh, is a, the title is prayer requests. Hello neighbors. I just wanted to start a thread that will be for everyone that is interested in prayer. Please feel free to post in comments and we will pray for each and every one of you. If you want privacy, then please direct message me. Prayer is a powerful and powerful and love is a way to get through this. Sending love. And they, they have a, a proverb in there. Uh, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Is that Brooklyn or Brentwood? Oh, gosh. Right? That's and, what and we're doing. That's what we're doing. Brooklyn or Brentwood. See? We did, we did, before we started uh, getting into this, I did mention to Xavier the arrogance that people come into this with and say that is definitely in that place. And, and more often than not, they're wrong. Look, I already told you, I ain't even heard of Brentwood. And Brooklyn, <laughs> Brooklyn is not the country I thought it was. Um, <laughs> it's not the country. Um, I, I'm going to go off on a, a strong guess. Let me, let me channel the ancestors for this guess. I know. <laughs> Um, Brentwood? Look at you, Jesus! Come on! Good for you. Good for you. Look Let him know. Look at Jesus. Well done to you. Well done to you. Thank I you love it. Much. Thank you very much. This, <laughs> this is what it feels like to be white. I didn't even know. <laughs> <laughs> no winning. Very good. Okay. Now, the next one is Yankee Limey Likey. All right? Right. So... Limey again? Limey is British. Likey? So, Likey just means which one do you like more? Oh, okay. So or Yankee or Limey? All right. Correct. Yes, Jen, Jen's yes. going to give you a choice of something, and you have to decide whether you prefer the English way or the American way. And oh. you have to give a reason why, okay? I don't know. You know, part of my work is about decolonization, and that's hard. <laughs> <laughs> so... Do you prefer, and I actually gave this to somebody else, but it's way more fitting for you. Mm -hmm. um, do you prefer Yankee comedy or limey comedy? Yankee, okay. What? Why? <laughs> I mean, I do too, but I'm, I'm surprised you would say that. What? Why are you surprised? <laughs> I think that you would like sarcastic sort of comedy a little bit more than our slapstick over here in America. Dry, sarcastic, oh. layered. In brilliantly yeah. intelligent, you mean? Yeah. Thank you, David. Thank you. Because, <laughs> Jen, you're, you're misinterpreting the type of... The, the levels and types of sarcasm. Uh-huh. The, the, the British, the British, hu British humor is... Um, there is a dryness to it that I have a deep appreciation for. Um, the, the, the challenge is it's not only dry. It's also often coming from an aloofness. Slapstick mm. is considered lowbrow, meaning lower class folks. That's part of the reason why, you know, when you, when you go, like, if you remember um, uh, In Living Color, if you yes. remember, um, yes. uh, uh, what was the old? Uh, Amos the, and Andy? No, God, what? what? <laughs> I mean, I know, that's all racist. <laughs> look, look, okay. Was no was, I was thinking about the, um, the, the comedy show where all the African-American comics, Comic View. Comic View, yes. Yeah, comic View, like Comic View. I don't know how that would go in Britain. I also don't know how that would go uh, in, in, in DC or in New York. <laughs> um, 
but it was the comedy I grew up on as an African American. It was like it was so it was so real. It was so easy. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and it, it's a comedy about the everyday life that doesn't start with I'm better than you stuff. I just I just I like that about the Yankee. Which I'm also gonna say, please don't be more I call people Yankees. The other side of Yankee is Confederates. Um, around here, around here, I don't know what the from, but around here, say Yankee. Uh, the other side is Confederate, and Confederates is a whole nother conversation. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Okay, all right. And so the one last thing I'm gonna ask you: uh, we have a uh, an apartment called Apartment 4E. <laughs> where Jen and I tuck away all the things in the world that we do not want to exist. And all the big obvious ones are in there. And, and every time we do a, an episode, we put something in there and there's a variation of groups of people, mentalities, unripened avocados for Jen, you know, anything and everything can go in there, bad drivers. So that's a Jen one. I know I rolled my eyes at that too. And I actually try to persuade her otherwise, but it's done. It's in there. I can't help it. It's a first world problem for Jen. Um, so what would you, what would you put language in? language doesn't use first world or third world. There are post-colonized countries. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. Okay. No such thing as third world. That means okay. that there has to be a first, any more than there is a, the West and the East, meaning that the center has to be Europe. The center is not Europe of the world. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Thank you. The lamp just very, moved. Very good point. The lamp just moved. Okay. <laughs> so did very I. good. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, what would you, what would you put in apartment 4E? Things that, wait, 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 run it back, run it back. I, I'm so, so basically something that you do not, something that irritates you that you don't like, maybe it's a person, maybe it's a, a, something that's a, uh, like a, an animal object. It's something that someone does in a certain way that people do in a certain way. A Bad question. traffic in a certain, people yeah. Put a question. question in there. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> in apartment 4E, I would. Um... Jen, no leading the witness. I'm not, I'm just. <laughs> Um, I would put, um, people asking to pick your brain. Oh, nice. I like that. Okay. So what's offensive about it? Is it those words? Is that it's, it's well, it doesn't have to be offensive phrase, pick your brain, or you just don't like people usurping your, you know, sort of. No, no, no. I don't mind sharing. I'm sitting there talking to y'all. Like, okay. it, I mean, it, it's not about the sharing part of it. Like, so, so, um, you know, I've been reflecting on this cause it's kind of weird. Like I, I, I know that in my space, in my sector, um, uh, I'm, it's hard for me to even say this cause I, I'm like, okay, let me just, I'm seen as, as a subject matter expert in my field. Um, and a lot of people come to me with ideas, a lot of younger millennials, especially come to me. College A students, because when I was working at University of Chicago, I meet a lot of students, and I've worked a lot in higher ed. I've worked with, uh, you know, in, in high schools, all this kind of stuff. And so um, I'm a bit of a natural teacher, coach type of person, right? Like I have a motivational speech about anti-racism, right? Like, come higher, come higher, right? Like, <laughs> uh, like I know, I know, I know. Um, the challenge with it is, is that I still have to be very tactical about my time. I have to be very strategic about where I invested. And there are certain questions that you could ask Google before you bring that to me. Like, it's like asking Bill Gates for $5. Like, what, what are you doing here? <laughs> Bill Gates for $5. Go, go, go. Panhandle, go get, like, pick up some change on the street, put it together. Like, ask your mama, like, why would you, why bring that of all the asks? You could ask for so much more. 
Um, and secondly, when you do come, come correct. When people come in with just disorganized, no real, well, I just wanted to hear about your journey. Listen to one of my podcasts. Like, what you mean? My bio's on the website. Like, come on. Like, tactical. And so the pick, I find that particularly when people start a request with, can I pick your brain? It means they want to have a non-tactical, non-strategic, accidental conversation Mm -hmm. that they can't actually get. And this is the insulting part. They cannot actually get the full value of my time Mm. because they do not have a plan. No, it's, it's surface level at best. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, I want, I want you to ask me better questions. Like, yeah. I can't wait to answer better questions or to think new, new thoughts with you, right? And like, to be provoked because of the level of and specificity of your question was like, oh, I never thought about that. Let me think about that. Mm-hmm. That was a blessing to me that you even asked. Now I've thought of it. Like, that helps me. That's, instead of paying of a consulting fee, that helped me. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay. Um, all right. Um, before we ask you to, to plug all the, the things, as it were, uh, I just wanted to finish on a quote. It's a version of a quote you actually also said in your TED Talk, actually. And uh, the quote is, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good people do nothing. Yeah. And it's, mm. it's a very uh, important quote and, and uh, something that uh, you know, I hope people listen to because it's very, it's very, it rings very true. It starts with people saying they have nothing to do. Exactly. And that's not my fight. That has that, or that's not what's happening now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, so before we plug all the things, Jen, have you got anything else to add? No. Okay. So Xavier, if you want to plug your company, your Instagram, all that kind of stuff, please, yeah. please go ahead. All right. You can find me online. My whole life is online at XavierRamey.com. Um, uh, my speaking engagements are all up there. If you want to check me out, a lot of media, if you want to hear some me ramble on stage or, uh, talk on podcasts or whatever it may be, uh, there, a lot of them are collected there. Um, my tags, justiceinformed.com, uh, also xavierramey.com. Uh, I don't use Twitter much, which is just at Xavier Ramey. What a shame. What a shame. You're, do you know black Twitter is the best thing to have ever existed? I am an ad. you not be a part of that? I, listen, I am 100% consumption mode on Twitter. I am not producing a thing. Catch well, okay. me on Facebook, and I, <laughs> I got all the stuff on Facebook. Just Xavier Ramey on Facebook. It's a public profile. Uh, I still got 400 outstanding friend requests. But <laughs> <laughs> At Professor X. Um, that's a phonetic spelling. Do you need an R- assistant? Do you want to ask for an assistant right now, too? I would love people? an assistant. Oh, my gosh. I would love an assistant. Um, uh, yeah, no, I'm definitely looking for an assistant, uh, project manager, all of that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, uh, but Instagram, I do a lot of stuff on IG, uh, at P-R-O-F-E-S-S-O-R-E-C-K-X-S, sorry, E-C-K-S, Professor X. Um, okay. okay. Well, thank you so much. This has been a, a real privilege to talk to you and I'm really grateful. Thank you. Thank you all. Okay. So... Thank you to Xavier, as, as I said, and I'm sure you're not disappointed. That was, that was fantastic, and, and uh, I really enjoyed that. So thank you. Um, so my apartment for read, though, to follow on from Xavier. Um, this week, it's actually a short and sweet one for me, and one that I would gamble pretty much that everyone will understand and agree with right away, spam emails. They're going in. Obvious reasons. It's, I mean, it's such a, like a... Like a a silly problem to have to delete spam emails or go in and, and like, you know, unsign up for whatever it is, but 
they are just so annoying. So I'm just going to put them in there. They're gone. Who in particular are you tired of hearing from? Say again? Who in particular are you tired of hearing from? Oh, anyone and everyone who I'm not interested in hearing from. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> you know, and, and I mean, most of it's like marketing emails and things like that, right? From all these different companies and people that have got your details from some other thing you signed up for or whatever. It's just like, just come on, guys, leave me alone. I, I don't want this in my life. Yeah. No. I appreciate Gmail for categorizing those emails and them going to yeah. spam folder. There yeah. are certain emails that I guess I have signed up for in the past and I just didn't realize that I was. So when I see them, I'm like, yeah. oh, these yeah. should go to spam. But then yeah. Gmail's like, no, you signed up for these. So it's like I have to unsubscribe, you know? Because yeah. you yeah. know how yeah. we all sort of impulse subscribe to would be nice let's get to get a newsletter from da 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 you know and then mm -hmm. five years later you're like what the hell is this so oh i'm always a no whatever it is i'm like do not send me stuff <laughs> really always. absolutely yeah i still get so much stuff but i'll tell you one cool thing actually uh if you haven't noticed it before on the iphone if you go into an email and it's one of these marketing emails when you open it the top left corner of your iphone it says unsubscribe and you can click on it and it will do it automatically for you mm-hmm which is, which is really helpful. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So uh, what are you going to put in apartment 4E this week? So I'm going to put an idea in apartment 4E. You know, one of my biggest pet peeves is when people speak on things that they don't know anything about and they think mm -hmm. they do that. So I'm going to put that in apartment 4E. The idea that it's okay to speak on things that you don't know about. Now, mm -hmm. the example I'm about to give is none other then the Cheeto in chief, President Trump, <laughs> speaking on every like he just speaks on everything with absolutely again, he has the information, but he really just doesn't he doesn't know how to communicate information. But then this one thing is so blatantly uninformed mm -hmm. that I saw an article about it today in the NPR, in NPR, not the NPR. Okay. So NIH just confirmed that the combination oh, of, yeah. mm -hmm. right, let me pronounce it correctly, yep. a combination of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin do not cure COVID-19. Cheeto and Chief has told people, what do you got to lose? You can just try it. Like somebody's life could be lost. <laughs> Or somebody's underlying condition can be inflamed if they try something that has not been proven to work for this disease. So Trump, along with other people, and everybody knows somebody in their life who, who speaks on things they have no idea about. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I want to put into apartment 40. Okay, and this is that's a really good example because literally within the last hour when I was looking at CNN, there's an article basically saying that uh, people who have been taking that and have COVID have a higher death rate. So it's, wow. at, I know, and whether wow. that's, you know, completely confirmed, you know, like anything right now, it's like a gradual understanding, right? But this it's a CNN article and basically saying that, uh, that there's a higher death rate. It, that's the pattern right now, which is insane in itself. You know, should he be done for manslaughter in which case for encouraging people to use this? Isn't that, isn't that terrible? And, and just, just to add on to your misinformation and people talking on things they don't know about, the, the thing with Trump is he does that a lot. 
Um, but he also picks and chooses the information he does take from the people around him. You know, he does, he's very selective about what he, he communicates to other people. And, and if it doesn't serve his purpose, he doesn't, he doesn't talk about it, or at least he doesn't talk about it in a positive light. So. Yeah, I think Trump is a really great exercise for children and adults to question authority. I'm not usually the type of person to even say that. Um, especially being a black American woman, that's just culturally not what we do. Mm -hmm. Elders say something, then it just is what it is. Okay. Even if we might have proof that what they're saying is not true, they're at least not habitually doing that. You know, everybody's mm -hmm. bound to make a mistake about something or say, yeah. they know something when they don't, I get that. But president Trump habitually, uh, misinforms the public and he has, mm -hmm no conscience in doing it. So mm -hmm. I think that especially children need to learn that um, adults don't know everything, adults do lie, and it's okay to question. It's totally okay to question. That's a, that's a very good point, and I, and I completely you know, agree with that, yeah. I would even go so far as to say, you know, an example of that is religion. It's really important to question religion. Yeah. Is, it's just important because yeah. Um, these are people's lives. You're up here saying that people are dying because they're listening to this idiot. Like, and I wonder, David, if he could be brought to justice for those people dying. I know. I know. So anyway, um, that's my apartment for yeah. me. But also, like I said before, this responsibility doesn't, doesn't just lie on him. It lies on the policymakers as well. And in particular, in this example, the Republicans who backed him during the impeachment trials and let him carry on being the way he is. And unfortunately for them and the rest of the world, especially the US, it, it was just before a pandemic, the, world, the world's worst disaster in history. Um, and he's still in charge because they let him go because they chose party over policy. And that's horrific. Do you think it's party or do you think it's whiteness that they're choosing? I think it's party. I think I think people people dig their heels in and and they, they want to succeed, right? They're the survivors and they want their parties to succeed. So it's what's going to serve that more than and, you know. And also, by the way, they have a lot invested in those policies, right? And those practices. They wouldn't be they wouldn't be pushing them if they didn't think that they you know they didn't help them in one way or another. You know, whether it was a status thing or a progression or a, you know a, a direct uh, bonus or how it affects their lives. I think the party loyalty is based on white supremacy. I find mm -hmm. it very interesting that Barack President Barack Obama had to come in pretty much perfect in order for him to be the president of the United States, and Trump is the exact opposite. Yeah. Old, stupid, uninformed, limited vocabulary, uh, somebody who speaks out of his neck all the time and nobody uh, makes him accountable. Mm -hmm. I think that all of the loyalty is just to protect white supremacy. Now, we can get into the details of that at another time, but I really think that's what it's about. And white supremacy is very much tied to money as well. Because whether you're a white poor sure. person or a white rich person, the white mm -hmm. rich person is always going to take the side of money. So mm -hmm. these people aren't loyal to him because of white supremacy. So yep. That's what I'm going with. All right. All right. Uh, good. Well, that can happily go in apartment 4E as far as I'm concerned and, and yeah. Trump along with it. I think Trump's already in there. So, uh, you know, is he? <laughs> he'll be fine. I think, I think we must have put him in at some point. I think no, it'd be crazy. I might put him in there. He needs okay. to be out. Okay. All right. Um, yeah. Okay. So before we finish up, it's my 
week for the lyrics. Um, and this week, it's, um, it's a song that's actually quite special to me, and, and in particular now because it became one of my grandma's favorite songs before she died. Um, and bear, just my grandma's French, just FYI. Um, but and to offer a little context about the song, um, it's called Where Do You Go To My Lovely? And it's written and performed by uh, a British singer-songwriter called Peter Sarstart, um, who was big in the you know, 60s and 70s and so forth. Um, he said this song is based on a fictional character, um, but there were some theories over the years, uh, including one that the song was about Sophia Loren, who is, uh, was a very famous Italian actress who grew up in Naples, very poor, and obviously went on to become very famous and affluent and so forth. Um, but the, the song itself is, a, is about a girl, the, the singer or the, you know, the narrator um, once knew as a child. They, they both grew up in poverty in Naples, in Italy, and later in life, she finds herself in high society Paris. Like her, her difficult childhood behind her and she's la lavish with like a luxurious life thereafter. But the question the, the narrator and the, the writer has is, is she truly happy? Does she remember her roots? And, and is she still the Marie Claire, which is the, her name in the song? Um, is she still the Marie Claire he once knew? Um, so the lyrics I'll share with you are, are actually simply the chorus. Um, and it's like an, it's an inquisition by the artist wanting to know how she was really feeling with all this uh, lavish lifestyle going on. And it says, but where do you go to my lovely when you're alone in your bed? Tell me the thoughts that surround you. I want to look inside your head. Yes, I do. And I will add on to that as we will journey through the song and come to the end, he finds clarity in the song and uh, clarity in, in his understanding. And the last verse of the song is, I know where you go to my lovely when you're alone in your bed. I know the thoughts that surround you because I can look inside your head. And from that position of very uniqueness of knowing who she really is, whereas no one else in the world likely does. And it's, it's a really emotional song actually when you listen to it, if you really listen to the story and, and the context and obviously with my association with my grandma now, it's, in fact, we even, we played it at a funeral in fact. She loved it that much. That was the song I chose for her. Um, anyway. So that's, that's my lyrics for this week. Where do you what go to you my call your grandma? Say again? What did you call your grandmother? Um, uh, nanny. Mm. Nanny was what we called her. Is that a common British or French name for a grandma? Not, not French. Um, for British, yeah, calling her, calling her nanny is, is, is quite common, yeah. I'd say so. Mm. Yeah. I mean, a lot, a lot of people go with the traditional grandma and grandmother or whatever something like mm -hmm. that. Gran granny maybe but we mm -hmm. had we had nanny for some reason I don't know why yeah I find grandma names so fascinating because I call my grandma ma and I call my mother mom or mommy even as a right, 36 right. year old woman I still call my <laughs> mommy <okay? laughs> that's funny um and then I know some folks who call their grandma Madeer or Medea my grandma used to call her Wait, did my grandma call her mother Madeer? Yeah, she did. My grandma called her mother Madeer. Right. Um, or mother dear. Um, yeah, grandma names are so fascinating. Tell you. Yeah. Well, and I let me clarify which grandma, because I have both grandmas. So one I call grandma and the other ma, and they're both alive, thank God. So, okay, interesting. Yeah. All, all right. Um, anything else before we close up? Just thanks again for listening, you guys. And um, yeah, that's all I've got. Okay, great. And 
you know, we hope you're all staying safe and healthy and, and listening to the advice of the professionals, parentheses, the real professionals, parentheses. Um, but give us a chat with any queries, ideas, or just because you need someone to talk to, we're, we're here, we're ready to listen. Um, and just like we appreciate you listening to this episode and others, you know, we're, we're more than happy to listen to you and, and would welcome it. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, Jen. And uh, we'll speak to everyone next week. Thank you, David. Later. Thank you.